Welcome to the Start Me Up podcast, part of the Demcast Network. I'm Kimberly Johnson in D.C., and today I'm talking with Steve Schmidt. You know him from his appearances on MSNBC. He was the senior campaign strategist and advisor to John McCain in 2008. He worked with George W. Bush and Arnold Schwarzenegger. But Steve left the Republican Party in 2018 and called it fully the party of Trump. Now, if you're familiar with him, you know he is the one with all the best words. He said Pence was a titanic fraud and described Pence's behavior toward Trump as sniveling servility. I love it. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about Bolton, where he thinks things are headed, uh, where that's concerned, plus Trump and Russia, and then uh, his new super PAC, The Lincoln Project. This is a fascinating conversation. I know you're going to want to hear it. Um, I've been excited to talk to him for some time, so... I can't even tell you how overjoyed I am to talk to him. But before we get started, I want to remind everybody that for the month of February, I'll be donating 5% of the podcast earnings to Planned Parenthood. Uh, If you're new to the show, the Start Me Up podcast is supported by listeners. I don't have any corporate funding, and right now I'm not using any advertisers, so that means the show survives on your support. Just consider becoming a patron for any dollar amount at patreon.com slash startmeup. When you sign up for a dollar a month, you get each podcast delivered directly to your email box. And that's like an inexpensive way to see if you like the show. And you can always upgrade later if if you decide you want to do that. Uh, Plus, the more patrons there are, the more money that goes to Planned Parenthood. $5 gets you into a patrons-only segment, which is recorded at least two times a month. Sometimes I have a guest. Sometimes I fly solo. It's usually a little bit more personal than the free show. Um, so sign up for $5 a month, sign up for $1 a month, patreon.com slash start me up. Also, if you would like to make a one-time donation, just check out the text of the Patreon description. I include my PayPal info. Some folks like to just, you know, make a one-time donation, whether you do that or you become a monthly subscriber. I appreciate it. It helps the production of the show. Uh, you can find start me up on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. It'd be great if you could become a subscriber on iTunes and then give the show a positive review and a good rating. I would really appreciate it. Now that's it for my intro. Please enjoy my conversation with Steve Schmidt. Welcome, Steve. How are you, Kimberly? I'm absolutely wonderful, and thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. (laughs) Well, I've enjoyed you um, endlessly on MSNBC, Uh, so I have a bunch of questions for you, and I'm just going to get going on this because um, I really love to hear your take, and I want to know what you think about what's happening with Bolton, and also, um, I know the the news, White House has just threatened Bolton and asked, or threatened him to not publish the book. Um, So do you think that Bolton is like a game changer? Where do you see this going? Well, I I don't, I think he confirms something that everybody already knows. And what everybody already knows is that Donald Trump, the president of the United States, held up military aid for an American ally that's being attacked by the Russian Federation Mm -hmm. in order to get dirt on one of his political opponents, in this case, the vice president. And there's a couple of issues that attach to that. Um, First off, it's the putting his self-interest ahead of the national interest and the abuse of power in his office. But, Mm -hmm. But the most overlooked part of this is triggering a criminal investigation against a U.S. person, a U.S. citizen. And I don't care what political party they're in, whether they vote, don't vote, anything. 
American presidents who can use the powers of their office to incite, conjure out of thin air, a criminal investigation against a U.S. citizen who they're sworn to protect. And that U.S. citizen happens to be a former vice president of the United States. What, what that means is you can do that to anybody. Yeah. And if you have a process that plays out, and at the end of the process, what will happen is the impeachment will be a permanent stain, but he won't be removed from office. Mm-hmm. What he will then know is, well, I can do anything. Yeah. And so to a political opponent that he doesn't like, it means using the power, say, of the IRS or domestic law enforcement to intimidate, to silence political rivals. And this is a hallmark of autocracies that were former democracies, whether it be Orban's Turkey, Erdogan's, excuse me, Orban's Hungary, Erdogan's Turkey, Putin's Russia. Mm-hmm. And, and what, I, what I think is so shocking is that we were on such a thin line that this could be Trump's America. And that's what's so alarming about all of this. Well, do you, I mean, do you think Bolton is going to make a difference in any of this? Well, I think that Bolton is unimpeachable from the perspective of he's obviously an ideologue. He's a unimpeachable conservative Republican. Um, and he's a truth teller on this. Yeah. Uh, but is he is he going to be a material game changer in the outcome of the impeachment trial? Of course not. Mm-hmm. And it just shows that no matter what your credentials are, that there's that there's no definition of conservative or conservatism that overwhelms complete utter obedience and fidelity to dear leader Donald mm-hmm. Trump, because calling John Bolton a never Trumper or some type of left wing agitator <laughs> just is so nonsensical. Yeah. Yet we see that exactly happening right now. Mm-hmm. Is that there will be no brook, there will be no dissent brooked at all in the legion that surrounds Donald Trump politically and supports him. Well, okay. So this is frightening. Yes, it is frightening. And um, I'm not going to spend too much time on Bolton, but I just want to know like, okay, so he's not going to get acquitted. And I think we can all agree, but um, more information could be coming out. This book is going to come out and obviously there's going to be more in it. Do you, do you see that benefiting Democrats in uh, 2020? Um, I don't think that there's much more to learn about the malfeasance, incompetence, and corruption of the, you know, of the of the president. So, do I think that there's anything in John Bolton's book that's going to affect the outcome of the election? I don't. Hmm. And you know, we're at the we're at the front edge now of a of a process uh, where the Democratic Party will put forward a nominee uh, in what I think is the most important election. Yeah. The country's had since 1864, um, maybe arguably 1940. Um, but that nominee, depending on who it is, nobody should uh, who's in opposition to Donald Trump should underestimate his capacity to be reelected. And the Democrats are certainly capable of nominating a candidate who could lose to him. And should that happen? Um it would be a profound institutional failure of the Democratic Party uh, to stop this, 
to have failed to put up somebody who can offer something better than Trumpism. And, and I think it would be shattering uh, to the Democratic Party to lose a second election to Donald Trump. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, if you look back at 2017 and 2018, 2019, the Democrats did very well in all of those elections. Mm -hmm. There have been two election election strategists who have basically said, based especially on 2018, that they see, and of course don't get happy, but they see a blue flood. They see lots of Democratic voters. Now, obviously in the president, you know, in the candidate we have some issues with our candidates because uh, even our own party is divided. And so there are people who are saying, if Biden's the nominee, I'm not voting for him. Or if so-and-so is the nominee, I'm not voting for them. I don't know exactly how many of them are actually serious. But but the other thing that I wanted to bring into this is that when I look at the 2018 election, and, and basically we did have a blue flood uh, or, a, you know, a blue wave, um, I wonder in this upcoming election and this is going to be my next question too about russia i mean russia's going to have something to do with it and there's going to be so much disinformation out there do you think that uh if if we see another trump victory do you think that it will basically have to do with the russians or are you going to say that it's the fault of the democratic party no i'll say it's the fault of the democratic party though i think that um Russian interference is obviously a real thing and something that we should all be concerned about. I, I, my point of view has always been, and I articulated this during the 2016 election, um, is that interference uh, by outside forces, uh, if I were the president of the United States, I would consider to be and would communicate to those countries that it's on the edge of being an act of war mm-hmm. um, and that I would take it. Uh, with the highest level of seriousness and the attendant consequences would be quite severe. Now, I want to talk about the 2018 election and the, and the difference between a midterm election and a presidential election. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is important for your audience to understand, which is largely a, a progressive audience. Mm-hmm. The midterm election was a referendum on Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. The 2020 presidential election will not be a referendum on Trump. It will be a choice between two candidates. While there was a lot of voter excitement from the blue side in the 2018 elections, it is extremely important for Democrats and activists to understand that the role that suburban Republican voters played in the Democratic victories. Millions and millions of Republican voters, and if you were to put a circle around the the demographic that was most crucial to it, it would be suburban Republican women. Mm -hmm. But suburban Republicans voted many in the millions for the first time in their lives because of Trump a straight Democratic ticket. Right. Now, those voters may well turn around and vote for Trump hmm. to put a check on an unrestrained progressive agenda. Now, I have a point of view that, for example, if the election were to be between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, that 
Donald Trump will be reelected. Why? Why and do you say that? comes from a place because in America, seven days a week and twice on Tuesday, the sociopath will beat the socialist. Hmm. And if you look at British politics as a harbinger of American elections mm-hmm. since since the late 1970s, the two countries have moved in orbit around each other. You had Thatcher yeah. and Reagan. Mm-hmm. Reagan and Thatcher both basically had a successor, a successor presidency and prime ministership with John Major and George Herbert Walker Bush, who were extremely similar temperamentally. Then, of course, you had New Labor. You had Tony Blair and you had the DLC, Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. The Democrats at that point lost five out of the preceding six presidential elections. Clinton brought the party back. You then had you had George Bush, who didn't run as a war president. Remember, Bush ran as an antidote to the meanness of Gingrich Republicanism. He was a compassionate conservative. Mm-hmm. You had you had Bush and Blair who had a strong relationship, and then you had Obama and Cameron, mm-hmm. very similar. So now we just saw an election in the yeah. UK <laughs> where you see the similarities between Boris Johnson yeah. and Trump, and you saw the Jerry Jeremy Corbyn candidate be annihilated mm-hmm. in the election. There was a Labour election in 1982 where the Prime Minister candidate Neil Kinnock. Uh, who Joe Biden plagiarized the speech years, years and years and years ago from the the labor platform in 1982 was described by a commentator as the longest, largest suicide note in history. And two years later, Walter Mondale ran and lost 49 states uh, to Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. Now, I say that in the context of Bernie Sanders, who when you talk about Medicare for all and refuse to discuss the price tag for all of this stuff in a Democratic primary. When you look at an online supporter base that I think is indistinguishable in its tone and tenor from the worst of the Trump people. When you consider all of it and and I I just say to people that are listening, um, how many of your listeners who have private health insurance want to lose it. How many people do they know who have private health insurance that want to lose it? And that issue is the biggest single loser issue that any presidential candidate will ever have carried into a presidential race. Yeah. And so what, what, what I'm saying is nobody should underestimate in a closely divided country Donald Trump's chances and not all of the Democratic candidates are created equal in the sense of likelihood of beating him. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. You have said more than once that he Trump is an existential threat. And I believe he is to the globe, not just to America. But uh, I'd like to hear you explain what a second Trump term will mean for America. Well, I, what I think it would mean is a is a further deepening of division and a hardening of the animosities that exist in the in the country. Um, you know, the greatest president I think in the country's history was Abraham Lincoln, 
and I, and I think the second greatest and, and close to being tied was Franklin, Franklin Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. um, the Democratic president, Roosevelt, saved the world in the 20th century. Um, and, and Lincoln saved the nation that would be indispensable to saving the world in the, in the 20th century. And at the end of a civil war that was per capita today amongst the most violent uh, in, the, in, the, in the history of the world – um, on the edge of victory, what, what did he say to the country when he was inaugurated for the second time? He said, with, with malice towards none and charity towards all, we seek to bind up the wounds of the nation, to care for the widow and the orphan. He, he, he's, his focus was bringing the country back together, mm -hmm. that despite whatever differences we may have on policy to understand, we're all in it together. Yeah, We are one people I mean, we're the american people and so we'll be more divided um the rule of law will continue to be assaulted he will be unrestrained and he will be unaccountable to the traditional system of checks and balances that has endured for more than 240 years in the country and so we'll we'll see that the second part of it is when Roosevelt was imagining the world that would follow the, the Second World War, um, which he had begun conjuring really before the United States was in the war, when he very famously met with Winston Churchill in 1940 in the North Atlantic, where they signed the Atlantic Charter, Churchill was coming with an agenda to bring the United States into the war. Uh, Roosevelt knew the country politically wasn't ready to go yet. And his agenda was to affix Churchill's signature to a document describing what the world would look like after the war the United States was not yet in was won. A world that was decolonialized, where there was an expression of universal freedom. And so the liberal global order that we live in today, the U.S.-led liberal global order, Franklin Roosevelt created this. Uh, he imagined it. Mm -hmm. It was it was architected by him. It was built by Harry Truman. And then it was maintenanced by presidents through from Eisenhower to Obama. One of the interesting things about Roosevelt is that one of his confidants was the Canadian prime minister, Mackenzie King. And he had Mackenzie King to the White House towards the end of the war, and he talked about the world to come after that war, that war that had killed 80 million people. And, and what he said to Mackenzie King is that he didn't imagine that it would last forever, what he, what he hoped to achieve. He said his, his goal was that it would endure for as long as every person who was alive on the day the war was won was still alive on earth. And when we look forward ahead to 2024, we're getting there. Yeah. And so I think we will see a retreat of America as a imperfect nation, but the most perfect nation that has ever been the dominant world power from a values perspective. Yeah. And so a world where American values are diminished 
where the American president celebrates autocrats and dictators, where foreign policy is transactional, not values-based, the world will become more unstable, more dangerous, and more detached from the more detached from the from the from the values that have largely kept the peace and averted the type of tragedy we saw 75 years ago. <sighs> well, you're not making me feel better. <laughs> um, you know, I I want to ask you about, you know, what you're talking about but then bringing McConnell into this. Uh, you know, I I'm curious if you what your take is on him. I mean, I don't know what you you personally think of him, but I'm curious, do, is, is he like fighting with or against Putin? They, they're both oligarchies and obviously Putin wants some kind of, he's got some kind of control over Trump, which I'm not exactly, I mean, it's a lot, but I don't, I wouldn't know how to even measure it. He just has the keys to the White House. And then McConnell is backing Trump up with everything. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure you've seen that um, Dallas Morning News report that in 20, it was a 2017 report that the GOP took in 7.3 million from a Russian oligarch. And I think that number has even gone up. But, you know, that makes me question, OK, well, what's going on with people in the Republican Party and the relationship to the Russians and how far does this go? So, like, is McConnell, is McConnell part of this whole thing that Russia's doing right now? Or is McConnell, like, I mean, I've heard that the Koch brothers hate Putin. So it's like oligarch versus oligarch. And McConnell has all this power. So is he fighting with or against Putin, do you think? Well, let's, let's back up for a second. Um, going back to the 2012 presidential debate, there was a question posed between uh, President Obama and Mitt Romney about what was the greatest threat geopolitically mm -hmm. to the United States. Mm -hmm. And Mitt Romney answered the question correctly. He yes. said Russia. Yes. And uh, President Obama mocked him, as did most of the commentators afterwards. And uh, Mitt Romney was exactly right um, when he gave that answer in 2012. There, there is certainly a Russia fetish inside the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly inexplicable attitudes uh, from an American president uh, towards the Russian president and an autocrat. Mm -hmm. You look at the poll numbers and you say, you see that, you know, Republican voters believe Russia is an ally of the United States. Um, you see a lot of, um, a lot of friendliness from the evangelical mm -hmm. community uh, towards Russia, um, as Putin, uh, really positions himself in that country as a defender, um, you know, really both of the white race and, and, you know, what we would talk about as white Christianity. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a fidelity there. Um, and I think that's very, very troubling and, and, um, and very alarming, right. For the, for the security of the, you know, for the security of the United States. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell, I think is, you know, somebody who's been in the United States Senate since 1980, mm -hmm. right. So 20 is going to be, you know, what, what is that? 50 years. Yeah. Right. 
and and running for running for reelection. The geography, it's a big position. It's a powerful position, right? But it's it's like being in the same high school for fifty years, right? With a hundred people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're you're a forty eighth year senior, right? Occasionally, new people come in, right? But you're you're there. Um, it's a it's a small account, you know, small it's small terrarium, right? Yeah. The the Capitol buildings. It's a small world against a big country. And I think if you're up there long enough, um, it becomes zero sum, right? It, it's there's there's been a, a collapse of the decorum in yeah. the Senate, uh, collegiality uh, of cooperation. And, and Harry Reid, by the way, is 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 uh, Mitch McConnell's analog here, right? They they exist together mm-hmm. in breaking this institution. Um, they broke it together, and Harry Reid's gone. McConnell's still there. One one feature of the Trump presidency is he's he's approved and had nominated uh, more federal judges faster. Uh, than any president ever. Yeah. And this is what Mitch McConnell cares about. So I think that, you know, Mitch McConnell is able to overlook the terrible behavior, uh, the ignorance, malfeasance, uh, transactionally to get done what he wants to get done, what he wants to get done. I think what he views as his enduring legacy is a remaking of the federal judiciary. And he'll be successful at that. And so I think that if you've been up there for 50 years in the United States Senate, you've been the leader for a long time. There's no possibility that it doesn't make you jaded, that it doesn't make you cynical. Um, And, you know, I think Mitch McConnell looks at the world and says, well, you know, we had a nice guy, polite guy. You know, I definitely if I had to leave my grandkids with someone, I'd leave them with the Obamas, not the Trumps. But when it comes to who do I want to see remaking the federal judiciary, I'll go with the guy from New York. Do you think that if Trump becomes uh, or gets a second term, that he this country will look more like a like Russia as far as how it's run? Um, no, I, I don't. You know, one of the things about the country is just, it's a it's a federal republic where there's significant power invested and decentralized to the states and localities. One of the things, one of the features of the Trump presidency is the ubiquity of the president, right? He's in our faces nonstop, which is inherently antidotal to a sign of a healthy democracy, right? A healthy democracy, you don't have the leader in your face all the time, right? And so there's a constancy of coverage, right, that's exhausting and overwhelming just of Trump and the Trump presidency that – frankly, tunes and exhausts a lot of people, tunes them out, exhausts them out of the process. Um, what, what I do think, and the one thing the founders would never have anticipated, and even senators 20 years ago could never have anticipated, was the willing surrender of institutional power by one of the co-equal branches of government. You know, when I was when I was coming up in politics and earlier in my career when I was on the Hill, I was the communications director at the House Commerce Committee. And the chairman of the committee was Tom Bliley, who took power as chairman 
when the Republicans took the majority in 1994. But the, but the most legendary chairman of that committee was John Dingell. And Chairman Dingell was a fearsome president, uh, excuse me, was a fearsome presence in Washington. Right. And even though he was a Democrat, right, Democratic presidents understood that you didn't fuck with John Dingell <laughs> ever. And he was the chairman of the committee. The committee had prerogatives. And if you wanted to get something done, then you had to get his buy in. Right? He wasn't subordinate. He didn't work for the White House. And so this is this is inherently how the American system works is that power is diffused and you have three co-equal branches where everybody's keeping an eye on everybody else. And there's a perfect equilibrium that exists within that system that has been badly, badly eroded mm -hmm. in, in the, in the, in the, in the Trump era. And, um, there was a, uh, Famous quote, I, I hope I'm not uh, misascribing it to William F. Buckley, but I think it's a Buckley quote. And he said, if, if you have a person, right, who runs in and grabs an old lady and pulls her away from the oncoming bus, you have another person, and he was talking about the Russians, the Soviets, who pushes the old lady into the bus – the story isn't two people pushing old ladies. <laughs> and so, you know, so, so when you look at the Republican senators in this impeachment trial and you look at the conduct and you look at the foolishness of this all, I mean, how astounding it is to look at Ken Starr talking about the age of impeachment. It's just yeah, right. It, 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 it literally beggars the imagination. Yeah. And so when you when you watch all of this play out, when you watch the, the cowardice of it, mm -hmm. right? Um it's just very alarming. And I, I hope it's not the case. You know, I like to believe this is a disease, right, that you know stops at the center aisle in the United States Senate and it, it's not possible for it to jump over and to affect the Democratic Party. But I mean, I have to say, you know, there, there's no small number of Democratic senators up there who I suspect would do the same thing for a Trump Democratic president. And, and I think it's alarming. I mean, yeah. you want people up there in these positions who are up there for a higher purpose than obedience. And it's incredible to see a United States senator who possesses a powerful office so subordinate the power to Donald Trump. I mean, what are they all afraid of? It's incredible. Well, that's it. I mean, and you know, I, I, my pinned tweet on Twitter talks about the fact that I lived in Russia when I was 12 and I had the opportunity to, to live in Soviet Russia. And I say, I mean, I got to smell it. I got to feel it. And although I was 12 and I'm certainly no expert on, um, you know, Soviet governing, I did see it firsthand. And it, it does worry me because I feel like if Trump gets a second term, um, he's already done so much damage. He's already ruined so much of the norms and traditions, stuff that we didn't have as rules or laws, but everybody, you know, paid attention to them and, and, and obeyed them. But now that's all basically going to shit. And if, if, 
if he gets a second term, especially if, if the Democrats are unable to win the House, maybe they can retain power in, I mean, I'm sorry, the Senate, they can retain the House. But if they don't get, you know, if they, if, if they win both chambers of Congress or the Senate and the House, then, okay, maybe they might be able to have some kind of say in what he does. But I'm fearful that it will turn into like a, a, a Russian type oligarchy over time because there has been, you know, just from my reading and I can't remember, I wish I could remember the article, but it was in a, um, it, it was in some notable publication. It was talking about the re- relationship with Russians and the GOP has gone back. I think it was since the nineties. And I know that the Russians were watching Trump in the eighties and they were like, you know, basically grooming he, he they saw him as the useful idiot that he is and and i think like my experience in russia and my experience with russian people specifically like the militia men that were on every corner every street corner and at the airport and the way they looked at me a 12 year old girl who was the and i'm not kidding i was a geek i was so not threatening and the way that they would look at me as if i was some kind you know some kind of american spy there there is a and I don't like the word evil, but it seems like there's this evilness, this this cold, mean, you know, um, attitude that if you don't obey, you die. And so I don't think we're going to get Soviet-style America, obviously. But but my point is is that Putin comes from that mindset, and he's got this huge plan that's global, and it's it's succeeding over here. And I would imagine his main goal is to. Make turn America into an oligarchy, and then he and whoever else, what other countries, could just come and pick us apart. And you know, I don't know, but that—that's where I sit as an American who's. I I pay attention to politics. I'm certainly not an expert. I listen to people like you. I listen to all kinds of different people, and I haven't been convinced by anybody that that isn't going to happen. And that's that's my biggest fear. Um, and I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm just saying that. I'm frightened of it because I lived in, I lived in Soviet Russia and I basically saw what ran. That won't happen here. Not Soviet Russia. I don't think Soviet Russia will. Right. Right. However, right. Can, can we see American rule of law and our institutions degraded and see them degraded more than they already have been? And they've been degraded over these last couple of years and the country divided more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the retreat of American values under this president on the world stage is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the question that, like, you know, I, I would have for, for Republican senators, you know, as you as you come through this and we reach the inevitable conclusion, will he be acquitted is if you were to ask questions would be talk to me about the concept of misconduct in office. Was was this misconduct? If this isn't misconduct, what's misconduct? Is there such a thing in your view as misconduct? Or is any conduct sanctified and sanctioned by virtue of being elected? Well, is I there, mean, I'm sure they would say it was... Type of, is there any type of behavior? And give me an example of what that behavior might be that you would find, that you would find worrisome. Um Wearing a tan suit. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, and, and, and we know, um, and we know that, uh, you know, and we know exactly, right, that what the reaction would have been, you if know, if this was Hillary President Barack Obama, Obama right. had done exactly. what Trump did. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and I, and I, you know, I think these are all, I think these are all important questions. And, you know, look, as we're, 
you know, tomorrow is the 20th of January. Um, we will tomorrow be the 30th uh, of January. We will. Excuse me. It's tomorrow is the 30th of January. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. You know, we're 10 days on. We'll be 10 days into a new administration. Exactly. Yeah. Right. You know, we're we're you know, we're less than a year out from an election. And, you know, and what I would say to you know, Democratic voters um, is, you know, I think the most important issue, singular issue, is who is the candidate that can assemble the largest possible coalition of Americans, Democrats, but no small number of independents mm-hmm. and some number of Republicans, to stand up for American values, which supersede issues, in my view, to get this guy out of office. So I'm going to assume you're going with Joe Biden on this. We'll see how it plays out. I mean, I think the real contest begins on Friday. You're, you're yeah. going to see a winnowing of the field, and mm-hmm. then you're going to see in real time. I mean, it's – you know, I don't think it's so different than an NFL season, right? You know, preseason, you know, officially kicks off with the Iowa caucuses, right? We'll see less people in. It's not going to be – we have 15 possible people, you know, to play the quarterback position. We're down to four or five. Who, who looks the best? Right. You know, under, you know, what person, you know, do, 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 does, does it look like has the best chance to beat him? Yeah. I mean, right. obviously the, the primaries will tell. And I mean, I, there was a Quinnipiac poll that came out uh, within the last couple of days and Joe Biden was winning with white people and black people and older people. Bernie, si- Bernie Sanders was Bernie sandwiches <laughs> was winning. Uh, that's a Chris. Hay- that's Chris Hayes little joke there. Anyway, um, he was the only one number one with younger people. And uh, I think with Elizabeth Warren, with black people, she was only at 7%. But she had a higher number of young people than Joe Biden, because Joe, I think Joe Biden was. So I think um, it will play out. I mean, that concerns me because there are a lot of young people and oftentimes young people don't vote. But in this election, I think they're paying a lot of attention and Bernie has gotten their attention. Um, but can we miss them? I mean, or I should say they usually don't vote. So if they if they don't vote in this one because they don't get the candidate they want, will it? Well, I, here's here's what I here's what I would say about some of the candidates is um, the 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 economy right now um, is a strong economy. Yeah. By by every objective measurement. Now that that the economy is as strong as it is, and Trump is as polling as weakly as he is, right, is a sign of weakness for Trump. Mm-hmm. However, how, how do you mitigate that weakness is when you when you have really a zero unemployment economy and you have people talking about revolution. Right. That doesn't work in this country. Yeah. Well, I'm not a Bernie and, supporter, so I know some people who listen to my show are, but they have heard me talk about the fact that I, I used to. I supported him in 2016. I no longer support him for various reasons. I will vote for him if he's the nominee. But that said, I just I just want to say, I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I understand that the appeal of what he's talking about is really mostly um, to young people. I mean, I know he has a large following. He, he has amassed this enormous following since 2017. I don't want to discount him, but I do hear what you're saying. And I think, you know, 
it, it sounds to me, I mean, I'm a Warren person, although I will vote for whoever the Democratic nominee is, and I would no matter what, I, you know, if I were Republican, I would never vote for Trump. I would just never do that. But, um, you know, and, and I would be thrilled to see Warren get the nomination. I think that she can do it. I don't know if you think she can or anybody else, but I think, I think the common, what people seem to be uh, saying in this country is, it's Joe Biden. I mean, I live in an area where there's a good amount of African-American uh, people, and, and I've talked to her about the fact that I even have a podcast, but there's a woman at my grocery store who's a 47-year-old black woman, and for, for this whole time, it's been Joe Biden. I mean, she would take Bloomberg, but it's Biden all the way, because she feel, and she has told me that the reason she feels like this is because this is a white man's fight. And she, she, even though she loves Warren, she loved... Um, or, you know, she, I don't know, I don't think she loved Kamala Harris, but um, she felt like this particular election is about these two or two white men duking it out, which I, I find interesting. And I certainly don't want to speak for the black community if it, uh, they're the ones who have it the most difficult. And, you know, if, if, if he's the nominee, then yay, I'll vote for him. I don't, I don't, I don't buy in at all to the idea that you know, only a white guy can beat, can right, beat neither, Trump. I don't um, believe that. Now, I, I do think that I think Elizabeth Warren, right, has been from a polling perspective on the decline for some period of time. Mm -hmm. And I don't I don't look at her now um, and see her pathway to being the nominee of the party. Yeah, it doesn't, um, it doesn't look and, great. Unless right. Unless something. Uh, unless something, you know, very, very yeah. dramatic, very, very dramatic happens. Right. And so when I, when I look at the, when I look at the race right now is, um, you know, I think the nominee is likely to be, um, you know, either Biden or Sanders or yeah. uh, Bloomberg mm -hmm. and, uh, the Bloomberg scenario is, you know, as he's been out campaigning and his, you know, numbers are rising to he's a substantial figure in the race now is that uh, he will be uh, in the final two, hmm. right, against, let's say, either Biden or against um, against Bernie Sanders. And then I think that there are three other candidates um, that have substantial roles to play yet in affecting the outcome. Uh, and that's Klobuchar, that's Warren and Mayor Pete. Hmm. And, and I think that there are scenarios right, um, for them to each of them become the nominee. But the way I'm looking at it right now, it's like looking at it. And I hate to use a sports analogy, but it's like looking at a eight and eight team that may make the playoffs um, or not depending on if some event happens in some other game mm -hmm. and go on to win the Super Bowl. Could it happen? Absolutely. Um, is it likely to happen? It's right. not. Right. And that's, but however, you know, let's say, you know, where those Warren supporters go. Um, right. Exactly. As the caucus process plays out, right. The animosity, obviously between her and the, Sanders camp with whom she's most closely aligned ideologically, do they go there or do they go to Biden? Um, and I think that you, you have Kamala Harris, um, who 
uh, has all the requisite skills mm-hmm. to be a formidable vice presidential candidate yeah. who got out of the race early, mm-hmm. who will have a big role in a big state, California, yeah. um, which lies ahead. Um, you know, Amy Klobuchar, I think certainly from the middle of the country and, and Elizabeth Warren. And you know, so everybody who runs for president always says I would never be vice president yeah. yet miraculously. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's, it's been a job that no person has ever turned down. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so you will see how it all plays out, right. Yeah. You know, as the race begins to narrow and, you know, when you, you know, it, let's say you look at mayor Pete, right. He's 38 years old. Um, took Ronald Reagan three times to be president. Right. Um, yeah. He's got, I think he's you know, definitely got a future. I don't think he's going to make it this time, but I think he's got a future. You know, and at what, and at what point does mayor Pete take a look and say, Hey, you know, I've had a great night at the old tables, right? Time to, time to call it a night. You know, yeah. I got a lot of chips sitting in front of me. Um, and so we'll watch all that play out in the next yeah. month or so. Yeah. Well, we'll, I think we'll probably know who our nominee is, um, after super Tuesday. Um, I think I'm going to, I'm going to guess that. Um, but I want to switch gears now and I want to ask you about the Lincoln project because I know you mm-hmm. and a number of never Trump or conservatives have formed the Lincoln project. So why don't you, t- I mean, I know that you're, you, it's described as nonpartisan and, and that you're patriots for the rule of law. And by the way, I just saw that Martha McSally ad. It's got Rick Wilson written all over it. <laughs> um, you, and you, it was- you can set, you can sense it. You intuit it. <laughs> you, <laughs> Well, both you and Rick have some pretty good words. So uh, you're, you're both very good at, at putting those words out there. I, I know Trump thinks he's the best at it, but that McSally ad was just brilliant. So why don't you tell everybody, you know, just your point of view, what it is, what the Lincoln Project is? Well, Lincoln Project is a, uh, is, uh, you know, the founders of it, you know, the first four, though it's expanded. Um, you know, more than 100,000 people have... Uh, joined up, a couple million dollars have been raised, but uh, it was initiated through an op-ed uh, by uh, Rick Wilson, John Weaver, who was a longtime political advisor to John McCain, uh, George Conway, and myself. And we have uh, a lot of other people involved in it. Now, Jennifer Horn, who's the former chairwoman of the uh, New Hampshire GOP, um, all of us Republicans, but all who've said that you know, the fundamental question in, in, at stake in this election uh, transcends uh, our policy differences with the Democratic Party. And it's mm-hmm. the Democratic Party, as it's been called to do in the past, uh, is called to do again. And it's to stand up for American values, for our democracy, for the rule of law, uh, for our institutions, uh, which have been preserved and strengthened over more than two centuries through tremendous sacrifices that beggar the imagination. And uh, Steve Bannon recently uh, talked about this effort and how worried he is about it uh, because he said all that has to happen is for four to five percent of Republicans to peel off and vote for the Democratic Mm -hmm. candidate. And the Lincoln Project is aimed at accomplishing just that. And I think that there's a way that Republicans can talk to Republicans and can convince them to vote for Democrats that's different than Democrats appealing to Republicans to come across the line and to to vote for them. And so the Lincoln Project has a short-term goal to accomplish that, and then a longer-term goal, I think, to 
reestablish some of the intellectual rigor and architecture of the conservative movement Mm -hmm. um, and to reestablish some of the virtues of decency and dignity that you'd like to see by people holding the highest offices in the land. Um, And, you know, one of the, one of the things that I think, you know, if you look at Twitter and you look at any statement that diverges from the conventional wisdom, right. From the boundary, right. That's a dissenting point of view or statement. And you see the thunderous denunciations and the meanness and the name calling, I think it's really important to understand we, we live in an era that it's not just Trump's illiberalism we should be worried about. There's a lot of illiberalism on the left. Yes. Um, and and it's terrible for the country. It is. Um, we're, we're, we, we're, in order to have effective government, we, we need two healthy political parties competing against each other. We need a healthy conservatism and we need a healthy progressivism. Mm-hmm. Uh, without a healthy alternative, the remaining majority becomes corrupted. And you see that all over the place in states, whether they be Republican or Democrat, that are Democratic, right, that are one-party ruled states. Yeah. Um, and so I think this is – you think it's important over the long term uh, for there to be a restoration of health you know, to whatever it's called – but that that's the vessel of a decent conservatism in the country. Do you see this pack growing beyond the election? And I mean, I'm looking at it, like you said, it's like an, it's a new brand of conservatism, but not really because it's kind of back to the old school. Um, what differentiates that from basically the GOP that brought us Trump? Because I look at, um, I mean, from what I've read about you, I don't know where you stand on reproductive rights, but um, I, I know that you support the LGBT community. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, it's my opinion, in part, uh, Trump got the presidency because the Republican Party got so, um, I mean, you know, obviously Democrats love to call them bigots. And that's how we, you know, we, we look at it and we feel whether it's a racist law or a bigoted law that is discriminating against one group. Um Especially when it comes down to, you know, reproductive rights, which obviously I'm very, very, very liberal when it comes to that. So what's the difference between this kind of conservatism and the kind of conservatism that helped bring Trump along? And I I'm not going to say it's only conservatives that did it, but it is the party that got taken over. It did. Um, But the question is. And I think we might get to see this play out now in the Democratic primary as well, right? Is it, is it possible that a person who has been outside of the party, Sanders, mm-hmm. right. um, who's not a member of it, who was vicious in his attacks against Hillary Clinton and, and Barack Obama, right? Is he able to take over the Democratic Party? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question yet. Um, I don't – I hope yeah. You know, but the but the Republican Party, um, and the and and I think there's a lot of reasons for it. But 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 Trump isn't simply a reflection of issues in the Republican Party. He won a national election. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he won and Obama I think, voters, and I think he is a symptom, not the cause, of our broken institutions mm-hmm. that have been building for a long time. 
And, you know, the, the reality is, um, I think 9-11 changed history. Yes. The defining political event in this country over the last 20 years was the economic collapse in 2008. Yeah. Yeah, 13 million American families lost their homes. Millions of people are unemployed. A lot of their savings hasn't been restored yet. And what did they say? Right. They saw the Wall Street bankers be bailed out to the tune of a trillion dollars. Everybody kept their bonuses. One set of rules for people at the top. Yeah. Different set of rules for everyone at the bottom. And 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 people should be attuned to the deep connection between what Trump is saying and what Sanders is saying when they go out and they say that this whole thing is corrupted and rigged against you and only I can right only I fix it and and fix it and and move on so you know we you know you, Trump Trump played the played the moment really well and he won narrowly um with regard to your question um on any one of a number of different issues. Um, I'll just, I'll address it. I'll address it politically. Um, and, and I'm not, you know, certainly, you know, I, I grew up Catholic, you know, abortion's a tough issue for me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, individually, I I think the politician in America who got this issue the most right was Bill Clinton, Mm -hmm. um, which is safe, legal, and rare. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, if I was in a position of, you know, political authority in the country, you know, I, you know, I would do everything I could from a policy perspective, right, you know, to do what's necessary to help women make the choice towards life, um, which doesn't mean uh, restricting access to abortion, in my view. Um, and I, I do think, um, you know, certainly ideas of elective abortions late into the third term, I'm deeply uncomfortable with. Yeah, but those um, but those are usually um, yeah I understand by a I understand and I understand mostly it's propaganda that there's no such yeah. thing as an elective late term abortion and you know that these are medical procedures in the in the in the cause of the medical procedure I just you know I I have always been on these issues um, you know I've I've always had three positions you know that that I think are aligned I've I've, I've always been uncomfortable on the, the question of abortion just as a matter of faith. I mean, I have Joe mm-hmm. Biden's position. Right. I've always been against the death penalty and I've always been against state sanctioned euthanasia. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but people who hold this view, right. Um, should not be delegitimized right in the, in the political debate in the, in the country. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's a complicated issue. Yeah. I think it's, um, you know, and I and I, you know, would hope that I most people would, you know, hold the position that, you know, when it when it comes to this, you you want to see as few as possible. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that you know, I, I'm sure our uh, feminists who might be listening to the show would be upset with your terminology, but I will back it up and say that nobody wants the only time. You, I don't, I don't know how to use What's the word. What's always driven me crazy about conservatives, right, is, is around the question of birth control, right? More, more birth control, less abortions, period. Right, exactly. Right? Right? So I'm for more birth control access. 
Yes, absolutely. Right. <laughs> right. And, um, and you know, and as a man, I understand, you know, I'll never, I'll never be faced with this issue. So I, I just, it's a, you know, it's, you know, look, it's, it's, you know, if you're at a party or someone and someone starts talking about it, you know, I'm the, I'm the type of guy that, you know, retreats quickly towards the you know, <laughs> opposite corner of the well, room, I, I know, just think, to be completely honest with you. I think, I mean, look, I can totally understand, even though I'm extremely liberal on this and I believe abortion should be available and it, it should be easily accessible and affordable. Um, I realize that people have different opinions about it and I respect it. But I, I also feel that, you know, when I'm called a baby killing whore and a, a slut no, and all terrible. these names, th- this is, I mean, it's not to say that I haven't, I've never been called a baby killing whore, which by the way, I've never had an abortion. So I, I'm not officially a baby killing whore, but, um, I, I've heard other horrible names, different kinds of names from people in the Democratic Party or liberals, but specifically coming from conservatives, that's kind of what they want to do. They want to oh, shame. It's disgraceful. Right. It's disgusting. So it's like all I'm asking about, like this new kind of um, conservatism is I'm not saying I don't disrespect people who don't believe in abortion. I just I just we have a different opinion about it. And I'm you know. If I were to have become pregnant at a time in my at certain times in my life, I absolutely would have chosen an abortion. And it would it didn't mean I was going to throw a big abortion party. And that's again, that's kind of like how some conservatives, especially the evangelical crowd. I don't don't think I don't think like we look at this right. This this isn't a single issue movement. I mean, it's the idea that if you look at the Republican Party platform, right, from uh, trade to our international standing in the world you know that that the that the almost the entire body of what the party claimed to stand for has been discarded within a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Well, know, that's what could, I wanted could, to ask, though. Like the party platform. Like, would you have? Are you going? Do you have a party platform? Or are you? No, no, okay. we're not a we're not a we're not a political party. But you know, over the long term, right? What what do you see right now when you look at the Republican Party? You see an old white people's party, mm-hmm. right? And so look at, we talked about the appeal of Bernie Sanders to younger voters, right? I, I just, this is, this is inherently part of my conservative disposition. And by conservative disposition, I mean small C. Yeah. Just like I'm a small L liberal. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pragmatic and I'm an institutionalist, not an ideologue. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I never have been. And so when Bernie Sanders goes out and he says, free health care for everybody, student loan forgiveness for everybody, free college for everybody, free shit for everybody everywhere, <laughs> right? That, that I imagine will come from. Right, the tree plantings in our national forests where the free money will grow. <laughs> right, yeah. right? This, this isn't reality. Well, it reality, would come from taxes. Right? It's not He's, reality. It, yeah, but and it would come so, from taxes. And and he hasn't been clear. In fact, I think it was just recently he just didn't even answer the question. He said, I don't know. Um, right. So, But, th- the, but the, that's where it would the come country, from. The country is $11, $12 trillion in debt. And ultimately, there will be a debt crisis. And the people who get hurt in a debt crisis, when governments run out of money, 
are the poorest amongst us. Yes. And so when you look at a party that's viewed correctly as hypocritical on values issues, when you're looking at all of these Pharisees of the modern era, the Falwells and the nut woman who's in the White House um, defending the Roy Moores of the world, yeah. um, the, 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 the homophobia, uh, the hostility uh, to immigration and you know, to Latinos, um, towards African-Americans, is, is what you want to have in the, in the country – or, or two parties separated idea by ideas mm -hmm. that have an appeal to people of all races, creeds, period. And so, so the Republican Party is on its on its uh, on a trajectory to obliteration, just demographically. Yeah. Right over the course of the next over the next twenty years, mm -hmm. and so, you know, do I? You know, do I, you know, where I sit politically and, and the reality is, is that, you know, we don't we have two big spending parties in Washington. Mm -hmm. There is there is no party that believes in fiscal probity. Um, but, you know, do we want to see balance in the American political system? Do, do we want to see decency? We do. Mm -hmm. And and so that's why in this moment in time, you have a, a group of people that have spent their careers helping to elect Republicans, some people, um, 100,000 plus of them so far, we're in the early stages that have signed on, mm -hmm. um, you know, to do something that uh, is, is pretty remarkable, right? It's, it's to support the other side. And, you know, we would, we would hopefully, I think, to be as impactful by the time we get to the end as Democrats for Reagan were in the 1980 election. They yeah. played a big role for him. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this last question. Um, we've talked about it in many different ways, but just personally, how confident are you that sanity will prevail in November? I always think of my uh, old boss, John McCain's favorite quote, which was quoting Chairman Mao. And he would say, remember, it's always darkest before it's completely black. Well, that's you're helpful. That makes you're me supposed feel to laugh. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I'm, yeah, not. I'm like, okay. Look, I'm not. I'm not. You know, I, I was in. Um, I was having. Uh, I had lunch on completely long ago black with uh, with friends in with friends in Los Angeles, <laughs> and they were uh, all of them oh. were sophisticated people politically. Um, a bunch of them were elected officials, um, and and there was nobody around the table who didn't believe that a Trump was gone and B every single Democrat who was running could be Trump. Mm -hmm. I was sitting there. I said, Holy shit. I said, do you all actually believe this? <laughs> I said, like, there's a, there's a country it's close by. Um, you don't need a passport to go visit it, but it's called America. <laughs> right. We've got to leave the West side here. And, <laughs> <laughs> and head out into it. <laughs> and I and I think there's a real disconnect in the Acela Corridor and down the west coast of the United States with regard to understanding Trump mm -hmm. 
his appeal and his strength. Yeah. And so do I think, as I said earlier, do I think he can be reelected? A hundred percent. Yeah. Right. Do I, do I think that's a bad thing? A hundred percent. And so this is, this is an important moment that we're now up on in the country. Yeah. Right. This is a, and, and you look at some of the rhetoric that comes out, right? If, if every Republican is equally racist and equally a Nazi, <laughs> then why not Trump? If everyone is equally bad. Yeah. And, and, and so, and that's how I think you get a second term of Trump. <sighs> Going to need to have somebody as the nominee who can bring the country together. Yes. And to communicate to the country that there's a lot more we have in common mm-hmm. than we have in difference. Yes. Even on our worst days. Mm-hmm. And, and the whole point of the country isn't conformity. It's to get to the best deal you can get. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right? it. And it's, it's right. And the reason, right. For example, Washington DC is in, is the capital of the United States and was created. If you go watch the play Hamilton, you know, which gets into the story mm-hmm. is because a couple of people who didn't particularly like each other, Jefferson, Madison, Madison and Hamilton went into a back room and hammered out a deal. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever gets exactly what they want right. through a political process in a democracy. You get the best deal you can get. Mm-hmm. Incrementalism is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. No, not at all. Not at all. And, you know, I learned I was a pretty fierce Bernie supporter back in 2016. And, you know, I've I was political before that, but it was just that I liked his vision. I liked the vision for the country. Um, But I understand now I look at I, I look at the way that Elizabeth Warren is handling the election and everything that she's doing and saying. And I'm, and I do realize that, um, and it's not to say that in 2016, I expected or thought that we would go from Obamacare to getting rid of that. And then Medicare for all, I always figured it would be incremental, but it was not something that I thought of. Um, it, it, it just well, wasn't something that I spent a lot of time thinking about, but I get it now. And it's like, yes, everything is incremental, even because on Facebook, everybody, I'm sorry, on Twitter, everybody freaked out when, when the amount of characters was expanded to 280, people were freaking out about that. We got more characters. And, you know, I'm sure now if Twitter were to say, oh, we're moving it back to 140 characters, they would freak out at that. So basically any, any change is going to make people feel uncomfortable. And, you know, so, so a big change. I mean, look at what happened with Obamacare. I think overall it went through pretty smoothly. There were glitches. But, um, you know, to do a Medicare for all, like from start right now, well, it's I mean, impossible. Just the, cra- the crazy thing about Obamacare was always it was a Republican idea. It yes. came out of the Heritage Foundation. Yeah. But because you had a Democratic president for it, it became existentially we can't be for it, right? Yeah. And that's that's part of what's broken in the country. Yes. But let's, I mean, let me just say this about 
you know, about Senator Sanders. I, I like Senator Sanders, right? In, a, in an age when you look at, you know, the Lindsey Grahams of the world, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, people who like self-evidently believe in nothing, right? You know, Bernie <laughs> yeah. Sanders believes in yes. what he believes. He does. Right? He's authentic. He's real. Mm-hmm. Right? When Bernie Sanders tells you what, what, what it is he believes and wants to do, like take him for his word. Yeah. You know, and that's a, that's a rare thing, right? And, and if, if you think about it, right, if you're, if you're in politics, right, you look at, you know, it's like, look at it just from a market perspective, right? Just take the ideology out of it. Like, oh man, hey, you know, people really like good cheeseburgers, right? Mm-hmm. You know, before there were any cheeseburger places, you know, it seems, right, that the way to get ahead in politics right now is to be authentic and real and just talk about what you yeah. believe, Yet we seem to have a real deficit of it. We have a we have a colony of lemmings up there, right? That I think fail the country and yeah. fail their duty and their oaths in, in the in the history of brave people of both parties who stood up there and fought at great political risk for what they thought was right. Yeah. <sighs> well, you've definitely made me laugh before it turns to black. <laughs> so well good. <laughs> I'm still going to be scared, but I'm trying, I'm trying to maintain, I'm trying to maintain. I'm just thrilled to talk to you. And there were questions that I didn't even get to. Maybe one day I'll have an opportunity to interview you again. But um, I just want to say personally, thank you for your voice. Thank thank you for what you're doing. Um, I appreciate it. And I do understand that you care about this country. And while you and I may have different opinions on, you know, policy and stuff, I appreciate what you're doing. So thank you so much. Great to be with you. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take care, Steve. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. How about them apples? Steve Schmidt. (laughs) Uh, I'm curious to know what you guys are thinking about this interview. So don't forget to comment. Um, There were some things that he said that I didn't necessarily agree with, but it wasn't like a conservative versus liberal thing. And I won't even say agree with, there were just certain things that I might've spent longer time talking to him about, but I knew we only had a limited period of time. So maybe one day I can have a back. Um, but overall I really enjoyed that conversation. I, I love listening to him. He's an interesting political mind and I love, as everyone knows, I love his accent, his mid Atlantic accent, which I'm not going to do for you today. Um, <laughs> out of respect for Steve, but Anytime I do his do the Steve Schmidt accent, it's out of love. Um, I do agree with what he said as far as whoever the nominee is has to unite everybody. And you may believe that's Bernie Sanders. You may believe that's Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden or whoever. Um, I just hope that whoever gets the nomination is somebody that can do that because I I believe that he's absolutely 100% right. We need unity in this country. We are so divided and we don't have anything working for us. Uh, The internet is working against us. And, you know, we've got politicians out there and uh, political pundits who are not necessarily helping. So it really does fall down onto each of us individually. You know, we have to take responsibility and, I hope that people can put aside. I mean, I've seen people say that they absolutely would never vote for Bernie Sanders. Actually, there was a woman on my page who said that and I blocked her and she got so mad at me. And she I don't know how she did this, but she sent me a message, even though I blocked her. But she said, you know, you're angry at me because I'm vetting candidates. And it's like, no, I don't even like freaking Bernie Sanders, but I'm going to vote for him. And I think we all need to not play this game of threatening not to vote for the candidate because we didn't like them. That's not our first choice. 
you know, and, and I can just hear people now saying, but you don't understand. No, I understand. I understand better than you do. If you're like, I'm not voting for X candidate. Anyway, um, I'm just so thrilled and pleased that I had the opportunity to talk to him. I hope that you enjoyed it. Please, again, leave your comments. I'm really curious to know what you think. And I'm going to be talking with um, M, the feminist next door, next Monday. And then I'll be talking with Steph Walton on Wednesday. So we're going to have two shows next week. Looking forward to that. Um, don't forget, you can find me on Twitter, author Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y. And uh, also you can find me on Amazon. You can check out my books, Peyton's Choice, which is about abortion. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll send a copy to Steve Schmidt. I could have talked to, to him about abortion all day. And he was a real trooper for letting me go off. Um, but I also, I also have The Virgin Diaries and American Woman and Ain't No Sunshine. So they're all on Amazon. You can read the tr- descriptions and you can also check out the what's inside to, to get a little bit of a, a, you know, first part of the book. Thank you for listening. Looking forward to next week talking with Feminists Next Door, and we will see you then.